Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Kiati Sundaram is the CEO of Applied. Traditional CV-based hiring processes are flawed, with companies missing out on up to 60% of people, typically those 60% are from minority groups. Kiati experiences herself when looking for a job after her first startup, facing rejection from hundreds of applications until she interviewed with Applied, where they assessed her based on her skills rather than her CV. She joined as Chief Product Officer and within 12 months took on the CEO role. Applied is a tech platform that enables employers to build bespoke, de-biased hiring processes so companies can get access to a larger and more diverse pool of talent. Kiyot explains what bias is and how it impacts our hiring decisions, why this is so bad for employers, and shares some simple tips to stop hiring bias. Hey Kiyot, thanks for chatting with me today. Hi Craig, lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so... Just, uh, I always like to chat to the guests a little bit about their their background. So I was wondering, Kiati, if you could give like an overview of, of your background and like any experiences or events that led you to working in like the HR recruitment tech space. Yeah, definitely. My background is quite mixed. Uh, so I'll start at the very beginning. I was born and raised in India and I'm a first generation immigrant to the UK. I came back in 2006 to do my master's. And um, I started working in the city. So I got my first job at JP Morgan in the city. So I did banking for about six years. Um, and I like to say I've paid my dues in that time. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I realized that to have impact at scale, I wanted to be or I needed to be in technology because that's where I really think you can make really long lasting, sustainable impact. So I went back to school. This was 2015 odd around that time, went back to school, taught myself coding and started my first company. And that was looking at building more sustainable and equitable supply chains, what in today's world would be classified as green tech or clean tech uh, type of space. Uh, I ran that for three years, but then at the end of 2018, shut it down because it wasn't getting the trajectory that a venture capital back company would expect. Um, And I suppose that's when my journey or rather the inflection point came about um, and that led me into HR and applied. Um, And that's from my personal experience in 2018 slash 19 when I was shutting my first startup. I wanted to carry forward the same theme of tech for good, data at scale. um, But I started when I started applying for jobs. It just didn't land me anywhere. It was months and months of hard work and despair. In fact, about like six to eight months where I must have sent hundreds and hundreds of CVs and cover letters, and I didn't get through anywhere. And that's what got me started on the whole HR space that gave me an understanding of how things were broken, completely, completely broken. Um, And that's one of the reasons I work on what I do is, is how to make it a bit more fairer and how to fix a few things in the hiring space. Nice. Yeah. Great introduction. Uh, and, and what I was going to ask you about next was like the space you operate in now, which um, is HR and recruitment tech, but more specifically, it's about bias in hiring processes and removing that bias. 
So I was, I was wondering, could you just explain like what is bias in hiring and, and like where does that bias come from? Yeah, so the word bias is really interesting. People denote different meanings from it, but essentially a bias is a shortcut. It's a mental heuristic. So let me give you an example. If if you're walking on the road and there's a car hurtling towards you at 100 miles per hour, your instinct or your mental shortcut or a bias is to move out, move out of its way. Um, and that's exactly right in that context. It makes you do a certain action and it's based on lots of information that your brain has gathered and formed a pattern. And that's the right pattern. When you use similar mental shortcuts in a hiring space, it can lead to catastrophic outcomes, especially for teams and especially for minorities who don't look or sound the part. And we've got enough evidence. There's about 40 years of evidence now that suggests that because we've been using certain tools, it is creating huge negative impact on biases for minority people, such as women, ethnic minorities, um, and people who just don't look and sound the part. So again, I'll give you an example in the hiring context. If you look at a CV, and that's the status quo, 95% of organizations will screen on a CV or a resume. You'll spend six to 10 seconds screening that through. What is kicking in is that bias or the mental shortcut. So have you gone to the right schools? Have you worked at the right organizations? Uh, how long have you worked for? All of these kinds of things. Or proxies that I call our noise. And that noise means you're not getting an accurate signal of whether this person actually has the ability to do the job in your team and will thrive in your organization. So at Applied, we are looking at that in a more holistic way, trying to broaden that very narrow lens of what talent looks like and understanding what the undercurrent of impact can be. Like how does hiring and tech for good interplay with each other. Yeah, love it. And and um, you you touched on like some of the different forms of bias that you've like you've seen and, and that exist within the hiring process. And, and I've seen things on like LinkedIn, for example, where it's the same image of a person but with two different names and actually like a fictional person, but they apply to the same jobs and have a very different um, uptake in terms of like response rates. So it's quite scary actually how very small things can make a big difference due to bias. Um, I was wondering, do you do you see bias more in certain aspects of the hiring process? Like, is it more prevalent in, say, like the, the top of the funnel where it's like applications and CV screening, or is it actually quite bad actually during the interview processes? And or is it throughout? It's a problem. It's prevalent throughout the process. So we at Applied believe that there is a big problem in how we run current HR processes, i.e., the status quo. Um, many people talk about pipeline issues. I'm not going to go there because that's a completely separate conversation where they say there's not enough women in tech. But even when we know we've been able to open the top of the funnel, we have been able to get you more women applications in tech, more ethnic minorities applying in tech. We know that the process defeats the whole outcome. And that's what we've seen. We've now helped over 300 customers, half a million applications throughout the globe. Time and time again, we're seeing that if you don't have a guardrail process, and that's right from application screening through to interviews, the bias will creep in because it's it's evolutionary, right? It's all in our heads. We're, we are tribal in nature. That's what we are meant to do. 
And it's very, very hard to train it out of our systems. So we need solutions that work with us instead of working against us. Yeah, and, and I read um, on, I think it was on the Applied website, but 60% of people hired through Applied would have been missed through like traditional hiring processes. So like you just said, there's a huge talent pool of people being missed out due to these biases. Um, what, what are some of the other real big benefits of, of companies investing in de-biasing their recruitment? Yeah, so Applied, you can think of it as a trifecta that I, that I always like to talk about, which is... The traditional funnel has been talked of, we've talked about this for years and years, is we've optimized for speed. So everybody wants to fill what we call bums on seats. The vacancy needed to be filled up as of yesterday. This is true whether you take a small startup or a corporate job, right? All hiring teams are optimizing for speed. They're all being rewarded on how fast you can fill that seat. And that is all just one parameter. The holistic way to look at it would be what are the other parameters that would be useful in that entire funnel? And there are two other parameters that nobody really talks about, and there is barely any ROI related to that. And those two are, one, the quality of the match. Do we really understand that this person will do well when you're hiring them rather than six months or 12 months later? So what does that quality look like? Are there robust indicators? or leading indicators of that quality, such that you know this person will thrive in your job. And number two is representation. So when you're hiring, do you know you have the fairest, most robust process that will ensure that no particular person or types of persons are discriminated against? And when you take all of those things, I believe that there is no trade-off. And we've been able to show that applied. The three parameters work together equally beautifully and you can create a funnel that is free of bias. So you have to look at all those three things. You have to look at representation, you have to look at speed, and you have to look at quality. What happens, as I've already alluded to, is if you just look at speed, all of the other parameters fall, and therefore nobody is looking at the outcomes of the bias. Nobody is really coming to it from a leading indicator perspective. It is all coming down to, once you have the team in place, quite often a year has passed, two years have passed, a team or a task force has been put in place if you're a big organization to understand what, what's going wrong. But no HR team is currently in the world being rewarded for how robust is your process, how fair is your process, not just based on speed, but on other parameters. So for me, bias is one angle where if you look at the right data metrics and interplay that with all of the metrics you've already been looking at, you start to get a more granular idea of what works. And you can then start peeling away the different types of biases. And that's where it starts. It starts at what data you're collecting and whether you do have access to that data. And I think ironically to, to your point about speed being prioritized so much, I think in the current processes a lot of time, because it is very speed focused, you'll go into very obvious sources and, and types of profiles of people. Um, but what you're doing really is shrinking the talent pool that you are getting access to, which means that you're competing with pretty much everyone else for a very small pool of people, which will probably make it slower in the, the long run because everyone's competing for those people. They have a lot of choice. They are very difficult to attract to your business. Whereas actually, if you just take a step back and invest in the things you talked about earlier on, then you're actually likely to have 
consistently faster hiring processes in the long run? Completely. I mean, if you look at it from a societal perspective, we are no longer homogenous, right? But the needs and the needs of the organizations and the teams have changed completely when you compare it to the 1950s. But a lot of the processes, a lot of the metrics, that time to hire, all of that is still a rendition of that past. It's like a hangover. We haven't been able to move away from it. So we have to take a step back and start evaluating what are the needs of the organization? What does that need look like in 2050? Because we don't even know some of the jobs that would exist in 2050. So how can you screen them on past experiences, on which schools you've been to, and all of these things that we've just got used to? Because that feels like a comfort blanket. And and that's what the job of Applied is. It is creating that wider education and wider debate in the community about what the problem is, and then, of course, the next step, what the solution looks like. Totally. And, and uh, my last question in this section was going to be about whether um, that this has to be a technology, kind of data-driven um, solution, or like, is part of fixing the problem, can, can it be fixed through humans? Like, Can it be fixed through better education, training of hiring managers and hiring companies, or because of the way bias works and it's so deeply ingrained in a human being, that will never really fix the problem. It has to be taken away from the human and, and driven by a tech solution. Well, this is where it's going to sound controversial. I don't think we can train humans and we can train our brains to have a sustainable, long-lasting impact. Like we've had, we've had enough evidence, right? We've, as in the US, let's take that for example, we spend about eight to ten billion dollars a year on training. This is specific training on bias or unconscious bias. And again, we have evidence over several decades that the best it does is creates awareness, which is a good step, number one. But in the worst cases, what it does is something that scientists call moral licensing, which is as a human, I've gone and sat on a days of training. And at the end of the training, I suddenly think I'm de-biased and I'm free to do what I want because my brain will now work in a different way. That is absolute rubbish. That is not going to happen. You might be aware of it, but in the moment, in those decision-making critical points, you will still slip into your habits. And that's why habit-making is really hard and training your brain to do something else that is not natural or not evolutionary is really hard. So I, I don't believe fundamentally that a human sitting in a training room with another human can solve this sustainably, which is where we need solutions in place. Now, the real argument is whether there's a policy solution or a tech solution. And we've collectively, as policymakers in society, thrown a lot of effort at this and have not been able to solve it. And my belief is if we bring a new perspective, which is what does that human intervention look like assisted with a human-centered technology solution, then we may be able to make advances that we haven't been able to make in the last 40 years. And that's, that's my effort and that's my aim at Applied, that yes, it is a technology solution. Sometimes you could make awareness-related advances with human intervention, but long-term sustainable solutions need, and scale at scale, solutions need to be in a way technological or something more ingrained that would guardrail the human against that in the long term. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And, and so on that point, can you explain what Applied does? Yes, of course. So the what of Applied is it's an end-to-end hiring platform. Uh, and very simply, you could think of it doing two things. It's a construct or it's an infrastructure. Uh, and on the first 
pillar is it gives you the best data to make an informed decision about what matters in your team, in your organization. So what skills are missing? What skills do you need to hire for? What jobs look like and whether those certain narrow views of talent are exactly what you need or can you broaden the view of talent? So what does that data look like? What are you testing on? What does the application look like? All of that is a streamlined process that we provide to you. The second, which is a bit more difficult to do, is removing any data from the process that is obstructive to making a robust and fair decision. And this is kinds of data that I alluded to before. So things that sit on your CV in bold, basically names of school or how long you worked at uh, in a company before. Uh, so we distinguish from years of experience from expertise, for example, because you, you could have attained that expertise in two years by working very differently compared to working five years in a different company. Uh, and all of these kinds of things that by research or academic research have been proven that they are not predictive of talent. We try and remove all of that from the process. Uh, so in terms of how it sits as a tech stack, it will sit as your regular applicant tracking system. So an HR manager can go in, put a vacancy. They can check that the application is written in a fair manner. So we do some text coding and analysis to ensure that it is opening up the funnel at the top to as many people and not deterring several sections of population because we know there are certain kinds of words in an, in a job application that you would use, such as ninja or rockstar, that would mean a lot of the population doesn't identify with your job description. So that's the very first part, the nuts and bolts of it. The second part would be how do you run your screening process? Is it just CV-based or is it more holistic? Can you look at skills? Can you look at attitudes? Can you look at screening for qualities that would be more prevalent or more realistic for that job? And then the third part is, of course, we also enable you to run interviews, which is where it gets really complex because, again, that is the human-to-human -human interaction where biases will creep in whatever we say and it's obliged job to mitigate it to the extent possible. So that's that's the nuts and bolts of the product. Awesome. And uh, as I understand, obviously, you, you joined a few years into the business. So I was just wondering, like, when you joined as Chief Product Officer initially, like where was the business and product at that point? Like, was it fairly well established or were they still trying to find like market fit at that point? Yes, we've got a very interesting history. It's uh, applied springs from academia. So hence the academic leaning. Um, so I don't know if you know this, Craig, but five years ago, applied sat as a research project in a government think tank called the Behavioral Insights Unit. So the Behavioral Insights Unit is more commonly called the nudge unit in the UK um, and was part of the Cameron government or started rather as part of the Cameron government back in 2015, I believe, to look at how to use behavioral science and evidence in better policymaking. And one of the projects under it was how do you make more evidence-based decisions in the labor markets? Uh, and that's what the research project and a lot of the applied since then is an extension of that. But of course, there is an evolution and the startup has moved uh, away from that as well. But we spun out officially in 2016 and we're the only research project to have become a full-fledged company. 
Um, and they still exist. The nudge units still exist and they do really good work on policy. Uh, but that's very separate from applied now. So that was the hint to history, which is why I talk a lot about having had several years under R&D, which is time spent to make sure that the product was robust. But that is a research and analytical approach to a tech startup. Most startups don't work like that unless you're a deep tech startup. You wouldn't have spent two, three years doing R&D. But that's what we did because we were under the government unit. 2016 to 2018, you could argue, is the more still working with bit, but trying to find a GTM or a go-to-market, as we say in the startup world, and becoming a bit more commercial. But 2018 is where we started trading. And I came in in 2019 as the chief product officer and then took over as the CEO in 2020. So it is a non-linear history as a startup. Because a lot of the people who came in in the beginning were researchers or academic people, and they're not part of the business anymore. As we've grown, we have become a full-fledged commercial entity, and now we have a commercial team in place to run it as a startup and not as a research unit. Got it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't know about the background, so that, that's really good context. In terms of where you are today, um, like how... How large is applied? What kind of revenue? Is, are you mainly focused in the UK market or like global markets? Could you give it like a, a snapshot? Yeah. So commercially, we've done well. We are at just about £2 million in annual revenue, annual recurring revenue, as ARR. And we have majority of the customers in the UK. So 80% of our revenue sits in the UK, about 10% comes from the US, and the rest is all dotted across the globe. Uh, we're 35 people now, uh, so we grew really well pre-COVID, but of course that was a roller coaster, tiny, tiny roller coaster, and we had to let go quite a bit of our team. And post-COVID, we rebuilt that again. So we're 35 now. And most of the team has been hired in the last eight to ten months. Got it. And and in terms of your revenue model, like I, I have a obviously as a recruiter, I have a lot of interest in like the recruitment tech space. Is it like a subscription SaaS model or do you have a different way of charging customers? Yeah, it's, it's a standard subscription-based pricing. Most customers take an annual SaaS license with us and they would get X number of roles with it with X number of features. And then during the year, they'd want to upgrade. That upgrade could be based on additional number of roles or additional features that are more premium features in the platform. But it is a full end-to-end tech platform that most people get an annual license to. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Cool. And um, you gave a pretty comprehensive overview of like how the platform works. So I was just going to dig into a couple of areas that I was like naturally a bit more interested in, which was I guess like from a candidate perspective how it works. So I was wondering like do do the companies still accept CVs from candidates, or are there some companies that are a bit more advanced and actually they they have like a no CV policy at all? Yeah, brilliant questions. So how we work with employers is a little bit bespoke. It depends on where you are on your hiring journey as an employer. Uh, so if you had no data at the one end of the spectrum 
And on the completely other end is the very sophisticated data, very advanced people who know what they want. Um, either way, we work with both of them and you could understand that the process looks a little bit different. So people who have no data or are very early beginnings of their bias journey, they would still be using CVs. But then at that point, we handhold them to at least use CVs in a more objective way. So we allow you to take CVs through the applied platform, but then it's all anonymized. It's de-biased in a way, the way most we can. And we also allow you to test it in a more robust way against rubrics, which no other platform allows you. Because if you see the problem with CVs is it's instinctive. You look at a CV, it goes into the yes bin or the no bin. Whereas we are giving you a bit more of a robust idea. Of this is a rubric against which you should be tagging certain metrics on a CV or certain qualities on a CV. So it makes that very stage a bit more robust and fair. That's for people who are at the extreme early bits of the journey. Now, there are people who are really advanced and who've been with Applied for several years or even have done a lot of understanding of the evolution of the problem space and arrived at the conclusion that Applied is the right solution for them. Those people jump into us without the need for a CV. So they would only look at a skills-based approach to hiring. They would ask no CV, no cover letter, and they would go into what we advise most customers to do is how do you build a selection process that is only looking at skills, attitudes, and qualities that are needed in the job. So for example, if you had to hire a sales manager, this type of customer who's only looking at skills-based hiring would look at skills such as presentation skills, pitching skills, teamwork, communication skills, these kinds of things will then enable them to create a list of questions based on these skills. And then, of course, the questions would go to the candidates. The candidates would fill in these questions, but it's all anonymized. It's all randomized in the sense that a hiring manager would never know, oh, I'm marking Craig's answers or I'm marking Kyoti's answers. Um, and it's all completely done in a device way such that we've aimed and, and succeeded in mitigating almost all biases at that point in the hiring funnel. Oh yeah, it's, it's all really, really fascinating. And, and um, the I was going to talk to you a bit about kind of like how the assessment, like different forms of assessment work, and what you'd advocate as better forms of assessment in terms of being de-biased. Um, you touched on a few there. So is it a case of like companies may write a set of questions that they'll get people to answer, but they don't obviously know who's answered what, and it's completely anonymized, or is it more like multiple choice or different ways of testing for skills? Yeah, so we have a battery of tests and we build these tests based on um, detailed mapping of skills we've done. So as I said, if you wanted to hire a sales manager, we predict the top five skills for a sales manager. We then give you or predict these top five questions that you should be asking. And our questions range from open-ended text-based questions, which will give the candidate uh, the ability to demonstrate what they could do in those hypothetical scenarios. But uh, also we have MCQs, multiple choice questions, or some other kinds of tests where if there were mathematical skills you needed to test for, for example, in a data science role, you can just have a multiple choice question with right or wrong answers and get the candidates to take that. So we do have a battery of tests. Uh, why we've taken a bespoke approach or slightly tailored approach is the reason not all tests fit all jobs. 
and we know to be debiased in most places, we have to make sure we are building tests and validating them. Uh, one example that we know a lot of the tests or assessments types have in the in the market today is they are to the detriment of minority groups. So there is a lot of evidence to say that women might not do well at certain mathematical tests. Um, and that is, yes, partly bias related because there's a lot of stereotype bias when people like myself go into the tech world and they're always told, oh, really? Can you code? Oh, you do math? Did you do STEM at school? All of these kinds build into the narrative and, you know, they fuel something that goes in your brain and you're constantly second guessing. So that's part of the problem. But the other part is we know that tests, evidence suggests, have been detrimentally impacting women and minorities. So we are very careful when we build any tests, we have to validate against multiple people taking those tests. And if there are questions that we know for sure are adversely impacting someone, we take away those questions from our library over a period of time. So it is more about using the tests, understanding what works, what doesn't work. So it's a bit of a process. And um, I was I was intrigued to know, like, what kind of customers do you attract? Like, are they typically like large businesses that are doing a lot of volume hiring, certain sectors, or is it really quite varied from startups to global enterprise and, and everything in between? It's very well varied. We are very lucky. Um, and also it comes with its own set of challenges. You sell to everybody and anybody under the sun, but we have been able to sell to over 27 industries. So we sell from small startups, research, think tanks, construction companies, uh, penguin publishing house companies. So lots of these companies, the underlying commonality is they're all skill-based or desk-based jobs that you can assess on an online platform. Uh, what we don't provide is blue-collar jobs and any other kinds of jobs, which is really hard to judge just based on written answers or MCQs. Um, although we are looking at how we can expand into that category over time, but that's not for now. Got it. Got it. And then, and then kind of looking to the future a little bit, like what, what's in the roadmap for next year or two? Like what are the, some of the big milestones planned for Applied? Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting because we believe we're in a really funny market environment where we are seeing mixed signals. Um, as you may have seen as well, it's, it's, it's interesting where the hiring data and the vacancy data tells you something and the VC market and the tech market is telling you something else. So as a platform that sells SaaS, we are seeing mixed signals where some of our customers are already freezing hiring, which means they won't have use of a platform such as Applied for the next six to 12 months and other customers are hiring really rapidly. Um, and it's that balance that we have to manage. Uh, but in case the UK goes into a recession, and we all hope it doesn't, um, if it does go into a recession, then the product, we, it, my challenge would be still maintain revenues or the course of revenue as much as we can from the customers who are not impacted as much and try and build for that rebound. And building for that rebound means just being laser focused on the product roadmap, which is still, we are lo still looking at debiasing the whole funnel. So, uh, so far we've been able to, let's say, 100% debias the application stage and the screening stage. What happens next in the interview stage? We haven't got to that level of 100% debiased. I don't even believe we could do 100%, but as much as we can, how can we do that? Uh, the next stage would be how do we actually look at predicting the best skills and what are the 
mathematical validity for that. So that is based on a lot of data science and machine learning, which we'd have to hire. But again, if we go into recession, then we have to postpone that and look at that in 12 months rather than six months. So it is a, it is a combination of keeping an eye on the market and adapting to what the market does a little bit. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. And then um, what I was going to ask was, like, the listeners of this show, there'll be a lot of hiring managers, there'll be a lot of founders, where obviously hiring is a priority. Um, and you know, as a recruiter, I constantly hear about how do we get access to bigger talent pools, more diverse candidates, how do we hire quickly and efficiently? Obviously, number one, they need to check out Applied. <laughs> um, but that aside... Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, what are some good general tips or advice you could give to, to founders or companies to help remove bias from their hiring processes? Yes, that's a great question. So from my personal experience as a first-time founder with my first startup, the biggest mistake I made was the hiring process, right? With with the startup, every hire is make or break. And even if you extend that to other companies, in my opinion, every company is a recruitment company because if you don't have the right team, you will never have the right process and you will never get to the right outcome. So that's that's true in startups and true in other types of companies. So if there are founders or HR leaders listening to this podcast, my one request would be start with the conversation of, are you looking at parameters that are really, really useful and robust in the hiring process. So it's not just speed, because I can guarantee 95% of teams are still just looking at speed. And speed might be relevant in a growing market, but if the UK tumbles in the next 12 months, maybe that is an opportunity for all of us to take a step back, use that breathing space to really understand what is important in the hiring in the hiring funnel. So that's that's more generic. As more tactical piece of advice would be there are lots of tools out there that they don't have to be paid for like applied that are free online it's available start educating yourself about the problem space and the tools available and see how you can better even 10 percent incrementally make your hiring better and that is tools range there are text tools online that help you write better job descriptions more inclusive job descriptions and therefore free completely um, and there are processes online also that you could follow. In fact, at Applied, we give a lot of webinars and there's a lot of collateral on our website that is completely free. And you could mirror the Applied process internally on a spreadsheet, albeit it will take you time. But you could still do that and start debicing your funnel a little bit here and there. Um, and all of that will compound over time. So it does matter. Yeah, I love that. Very, very good advice. And then the, I want to chat to you a little bit about your kind of personal journey as as a founder. Um, and I know you you said you founded a business before, which didn't quite manage to reach the kind of trajectory that VCs would expect. So I just wondered, like, what are some of the key lessons you took from that experience that has helped you with Applied? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. There's, there's, uh, there's a few, there's a few that come to mind, but I think the most important one for me that still stays with me every day that I work at Applied is when I was building my first startup, I was so focused on just getting VC money that any kind of other avenues of money didn't even strike my brain. But having realized that VCs are only compatible at certain stages of startups or certain types of startups. Um, there, there, there is a lot of status and 
pride that comes with VC money, with that trajectory of high growth. But what I hadn't realized that if you didn't have VC money, you could still grow your company. And that was the mistake I made. I shot shop because we didn't get that trajectory. But what I should have done is found money elsewhere or found a way to sustain that business still it was ready for VC money. So my big lesson from that journey, and that was like a three, four year journey, was money is just a means. It's like petrol. It gets your car from A to B. And just because you don't get petrol at station one doesn't mean you never get to your destination B from your starting point A. You just need to find another station that will give you the petrol. And that's, that's the lesson I'm bringing at Applied because we've got at Applied a couple of rounds of institutional VC money, but that was pre-COVID. Since COVID and now in the given market, it's day and night. VCs are growing back in. I have to decouple the success of Applied from the vagaries of the market. And that's a big lesson. So if VCs are not ready to give money to startups, that's fine. Startups should find a way to become a bit more independent. And that looks, that needs to, the best way is probably just getting revenues from customers, if you can, um, and become independent such that when you want to go to that VC path, you're a bit more robust in, in the business and you can back yourself up. That was, that was one of the biggest lessons I took from that. But of course, there are lots of others. So, and I think we could, I could go on for hours if, if but we don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> no um but i think that's a really important learn and um yeah like you said i think there's also a lot more diversity there in terms of like where you can take investment from like especially within tech for good space like i see obviously still a lot of funding from vcs but especially kind of pre-seed seed like angel investors which are sometimes a lot more kind of value aligned um and can have a lot like help founders in the early stages a lot as, as well as like crowdfunding like a lot of the tech for good businesses have a very big community following and, and crowdfunding is actually a great way to to raise money as well um like what, what's been your proudest moment so far within the applied journey oh there have been so many the one that comes to mind is the resilience of the team and how we dealt with covid and how we sprung back since covid I mean, you can imagine you run a recruitment business so you would empathize with this it was selling a tech solution and a hiring solution in a global pandemic uh, and i know many companies who were doing similar to us have not survived well and not thrived well we've been fortunate that we've come out stronger at the end of covid we have more money in the bank than we had because we've put in place better financial engines we've gone on a path of profitability because we wanted to decouple our success from the market as i said before and we've been able to rehire the team and build from scratch. So it was effectively building a year or two worth of revenue again post-2020 because we lost every stride we had made from 2019 to 2020. Um, and that's the proudest moment that we have been able to rebuild as if it was a brand new business from scratch in the last two years. And uh, kudos to the team. I wouldn't have been able to do it without the team. Definitely. And, and it sounds like it's been very tough and challenging, but I think sometimes it's to the benefit of the business, you, you come out of it stronger. What I was also going to ask was kind of linked to the tough times, which are inevitable as a, as a founder of the business. How do you personally deal when it is really tough? Like, are there certain people you have around you that help you through those times? Is it certain like support mechanisms or frameworks you have in place? But don't we just all ignore the bad stuff? 
but yeah, I, on a serious note, I think support's really important. So I do uh, have a network of founders, like-minded people who share in the journey. It's very important to know that you're not alone. And if you're having a really bad day, then it's just useful even to have a sounding board to just go like, you know what, this is what happened today. I feel like I've done really badly. And more often than not, you'd hear the same things from other people who've lived that experience over a longer period of time and be like, no, 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 you haven't done badly. This is how the nature of the beast is. And it's just ebbs and flows. So it helps. It helps to have that circle where you can just be really honest and consider it a safe space for yourself. Definitely. Definitely. And um, my final section of the podcast is chatting to you about kind of building, growing a, a tech for good business. Um, as you just mentioned, you know, it has been challenging. You had to kind of you know, uh, downsize the team. You've rebuilt that uh, up to 35 people at the moment. Um, I just wondered, you know, as CEO, what have you really focused on or doubled down on when it comes to building a tech for good business that stays true to that, that mission statement you have? For me, it's all about deconstructing the social construct. So you think of what we've been thinking about talent for decades and decades is it looks like this. So there's a mold and that mold builds a construct and it's an artificial construct created by us. And at Applied, I just want to deconstruct that and start thinking of it from a more long-term view. For me, tech for good basically means can we leave the world better in the long term? And I look at both the interplay of human and tech development. So for me, it's never been about tech at the expense of humans or humans taking away from tech. It has to work in concert, which is why I talk a lot about human-centered development at Applied. And it is about building that larger level of societal consciousness. It's about creating level access to economic opportunities. Um, it's about that expression of inclusivity that we see in society, but has not translated into organizations. And once you have that mission, once you have that vision and clarity, you can build to that. It's about getting the team to work on that. It's about convincing the team that that matters. And it does matter because we have a very lofty ambition and mission. And most of the team at Applied is deep believer that we can scale this business. And once we scale this business and make the world better, profits will be a byproduct of that great business. And that's why most of us do what we do. Completely agree. And uh, on kind of how you've grown the business to the 35, I believe you use obviously your own platform for your own hiring. Is that right? Needless to say, we do that. Yes. <laughs> and we have seen massive success. So we are highly representative as a tech team. We are half women, which doesn't usually happen. As a company, we're half women and non-binary. Uh, we also hire for our board through the same applied process, and our board is partly women as well. So it's it's good to see that without losing that diversity and representation representation parameter, and still adding in other parameters of speed, robustness, fairness, quality, all of that, we can build a process that really works. And the same is true for our customers. 100%. And I was going to ask, like, do you think um, that's actually like a, a differentiator in like a, a competitive talent market that you do use, not necessarily use your own platform, but you supply it and it does all these things. Like if candidates notice it, it's a, a deep bias 
recruitment process, they're more likely to apply. I do believe so. I believe the current workforce does need to see that kind of empathy and fairness from the employers and applied as a tool for many of our customers and ourselves is used as a beacon of that symbol, that it is going to be fair and it has that promise to the candidates. And that's why people choose to apply. So quite a lot of the times we've seen people, customers who've come to us saying, you know what, we have these tech roles. We've not got any women applying. We've not got any ethnic minorities applying. And then they suddenly use applied and it's like a flip of a switch because it's a signal to the market that there is this fairness element that is going to treat you fairly like a human. And you will get a response no matter what, because you know most of the people don't even respond. Your CV goes in a black hole and you never hear back. But applied, because we have a technology tool, we've been able to automate a lot of that process. So every individual, every candidate would get feedback about what they can do better, what they were not great at, and what they can improve for the next application. So it is building that relationship with the candidate with not a lot of other platforms can do. 100%. And on, on that note, uh, like I'm sure there'll be people listening that find what Applied do really interesting. And if if and when you are hiring, if people are interested in working for Applied, where's the best place for them to, to find you or, or apply? We have a job board on our website that gives us gives candidates and employers an idea of all of our customers and all of the jobs we have. Unfortunately, we're not hiring at the moment, but everybody, please look out on our job board. We will be hiring soon. Excellent. Well, Kiati, it's been a really informative chat. Thank you for, for speaking with me today. Thanks, Craig. That was wonderful. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahimi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.